Hello, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of the international edition of The Art of Drug Choice, VetAMD and the latest data. Again, it's my pleasure to have our esteemed faculty, Dr. Sinu Hariparshad from University of Chicago. Thank you, Ashad, for the kind introduction. Dr. Justice Garwick from University of Bern in Switzerland. Happy to share the discussion. And Dr. Peter Kurz from University of Toronto, Canada. Thanks, Arshan. Happy to be here. Welcome, everyone. So this episode is third of the fourth episode uh, series that we have. Today, we'll review a few pipeline candidates for wet AMD. We'll also hear a case from Dr. Hari Prasad today. If you want to hear a discussion on tactics for switching wet AMD patients to different drugs or a discussion of the latest phase three and post-marketing data for wet AMD drugs, please go back and listen to our first two episodes. Next time, we'll discuss safety as it relates to the next generation of wet AMD drugs. Now, let's get into our review of pipeline candidates with Dr. Sinu Hariprasad telling us a little bit about KSI 301. Thank you so much, Ashad. KSI 301 by Kodiak Sciences is a very interesting molecule. It's an antibody biopolymer conjugate, or it's called the ABC technology. The biopolymer is a branched polymer, is optically clear, and has a very high molecular weight to over 1 million uh, Daltons. KSI 301 is designed for intravitreal delivery and um, uh, allows for high potency. The phase 1B um, uh, trial results are as follows. Patients received uh, doses at uh, weeks zero, four, and eight, and were monitored to 18 months. At the end of one year, patients gained an average of 5.7 letters from baseline. 80% of patients needed less than two treatments per, uh, in the first year. 54% of patients only needed one retreatment uh, at, uh, at the end of 12 months. And 66% of patients were at six-month treatment intervals through the first year. But what's very important is to keep an eye out for the phase 2B3 uh, DAZL FDA registration study called DAZL. And it's a pivotal study for wet AMD, 550 uh, patients uh, or more uh, treatment naive patients with wet AMD will be fully enrolled in the study. And the results will be uh, released at um, uh, early in 2022 as the last one year visit will be late in 2021. Thanks, Sinu, for an excellent uh, summary. Of course, KSI 301 is designed to decrease uh, treatment burden by showing greater durability than current available agents. And we have seen that data in their phase 1B trial, as you mentioned. Peter, any thoughts on KSI 301? I mean, I think this, um, uh, of, the, of the many different things that we're going to discuss, I think this has tremendous promise. You know, the idea of um, uh, delivering a platform and a drug of your choice by intravitreal injection and uh, needing treatment, you know, once or twice a year, I think um, I think has tremendous implications and tremendous uh, promise. I very much look forward to the outcomes of the Dazzle study. I agree, Peter. I think it has great potential, and of course, we are waiting for the Dazzle trial, which will show us the comparator data with the Flibercep uh, on label, and and if we can have durability, uh, you know, four, five, six months. Uh, with this agent, obviously, it's uh, it's super crucial in the trials. Um, they're designed to go up to um, uh, Q20 weeks, but you know, as as you mentioned before, I think in real world we'll push the limits and see how far we can go. Uh, you know, in the phase one B trial, you know, there were many patients who didn't need any treatment until 
mandated uh, six months dosing uh, in patients with neovascular AMD. And we also saw the durability in, in diabetic macular edema as well as retinal vein occlusion. So we'll see how the data pans out. Of course, the data has to speak for itself to see how the visual acuity gains, um, anatomic changes, as well as um, durability and uh, safety looks for KSI 301. Justice, uh, for you, I mean, you're injecting a biopolymer in the eye that has great durability. We're gonna discuss safety in the later episode, but, but what are your thoughts about injecting a platform as uh, Peter said? Great uh, question is on the one hand, uh, whether it's tolerated by every patient or uh, whether there's uh, some safety concern with this new uh, uh, biopolymer. This is one thing. And the second thing, what I think uh, is long-term uh, performance is important. Six months performance is, is not interesting. So for the moment, I would be reluctant to have a meeting uh, on, on to that drug. If it were what it promised, it would be a great choice for the future. I think that's an excellent point. And I think the long-term data from, from 1B as well as the Dazzle uh, trial will let us know, plus the ongoing gleam and glimmer studies in diabetic macular edema, the beacon trial um, in, in uh, retinal vein occlusion. I think we're gonna learn a lot and hear a lot about uh, this drug in the future. So let's now uh, move on to Dr. Peter Kurtz. He'll be talking about uh, RGX314 gene therapy. Uh, I'm going to talk about um, RGX314. Uh, the phase one and two A trials have been completed, um, and they they demonstrated that RGX314 was safe in a phase one, two A trial for the treatment of wet AMD, and signs of efficacy were also observed. So RGX314 is an adeno-associated uh, vector that carries a gene that encodes for a monoclonal antibody fragment. So the protein expressed is designed to neutralize VEGF activity um, that of course is the cause and source of neovascularization. It's delivered following vitrectomy into the subretinal space, um, but they're exploring uh, ways in which to deliver it through the suprachoroidal space. And hopefully uh, we'll see that in the next study phase. So these early trials uh, enrolled patients who required monthly injections for wet AMD. So these are recalcitrant wet AMD patients. There were five arms uh, and each arm had an uh, escalating uh, dose of RGX314. Anti an anti-VEGF agent was administered at baseline and if a response was seen, then RGX314 was administered and patients were followed monthly. So RGX314 was safe and signs of efficacy were absorbed. Uh, we have some new data from cohorts four and five. At one and a half years, Follow-up, the average change from baseline in cohort four was plus one letter and uh, minus 46 microns in central retinal thickness. The average change from baseline in cohort five was minus one letter and minus three microns in central retinal thickness. So you have to remember that these are not treatment IE patients, but these are patients that had been uh, on, had ongoing active therapy. So the long-term treatment burden and efficacy, efficacy results from cohort three. We have three years follow-up in cohort three. Um, they're plus 12 letters from baseline. They needed a mean of 2.4 injections of an anti-VEGF agents uh, since the administration and implantation of RGX314. And three of, out of the six patients, so half of the patients didn't require any injections uh, over that period of follow-up. The most recent treatment burden results from cohorts four and five 
at one and a half years follow-up in cohort four, uh, the patients needed a mean of 4.4 anti-VEGF agents since the implantation of RGX314, and four of 12 patients did not need uh, any injections uh, after month six. For the latter cohort, cohort five, there are a mean of 1.7 anti-VEGF injections since RGX314 was administered, and eight of 11 patients did not need any injections after month six. So what we need to watch for, there are two pivotal trials that are forthcoming. The first trial, Atmosphere, uh, is, is currently enrolling. Two doses of the drug will be evaluated, including the highest dose from the original trials, and will be compared to monthly ranibizumab. The potential for suprachoroidal delivery in these pivotal trials, uh, which could remove the surgical burden and the associated risks that come with vitrectomy and subretinal injection. Thank you, Peter, uh, for the great summary. Uh, you know, I think gene therapy is very exciting. It's a new space. We have a lot to learn. But as you presented the data, we now have uh, data, you know, three years down from a single delivery. And, and what we have seen is uh, great efficacy in majority of the patients and, and, and the decreased treatment burden. Of course, we can cure all the patients, but it seems like there's a good subset of patients that are essentially cured with continuous delivery of anti-VEGF. And, and obviously we discuss about operating room and, and the burden and the risk and benefits obviously for patients uh, in the prior episode. Uh, but I think if you can get the suprachoroidal delivery working, which is currently being looked at in the phase two aviate uh, trial for red AMD and altitude study for diabetic retinopathy, if we can make this an in-office procedure, I think it's much more meaningful uh, for patients and we can maybe treat a lot more patients um, than we would uh, if this is just an option for the operating room. But I think a great option for patients. Um, uh, Sinu, what are your thoughts on RGX314 and does vitrectomy and, um, and delivering the drug subretinally, does that uh, bother you? And do you think that majority of the physicians can, can uh, do that? Well, Ashad, you took the words out of my mouth. Uh, subretinal delivery is acceptable in orphan diseases. Um, you take uh, Luxterna by Spark, um, maybe 200 patients in the whole country have been treated, I'm guessing, at that number. But in that case, subretinal delivery is acceptable because there's so few patients. In a disease like wet AMD, um, you know, probably one of the leading causes of vision loss in the um, um, uh, uh, in um, uh, first world nations, Caucasian populations, you know, it's very difficult to um, you know, deal with that population of patients and take them to the OR and do subretinal delivery. Um, so um, um, I, I think one of the best decisions was to move to suprachoroidal delivery and explore that path of delivery. So until we have data on um, uh, how that works, um, you know, I still have a guarded, um, uh, um, uh, you know, really a guarded view of this therapy until we see more data looking at sub um, uh, suprachoroidal delivery. But subretinal delivery, I think, would be very difficult. Uh, with a high volume of AMD patients uh, we all, all have in our practices. Those are, those are great points. You know, I think it's, it's, it's taking patients to the OR and then, of course, the practice dynamics and the burden. And as you mentioned, Luxterna, we don't have options. And, you know, for, for, for RP65, that's the only option we have. So I think uh, we don't have a choice. But here we are going to have options of uh, longer-acting uh, delivery agents but frequent or repeated injections versus a treatment here, which has the potential of essentially curing two thirds or so of patients. Obviously we're still learning a lot because it's a new space. Uh, justice for you, 
how does that uh, fit in if you have a patient that comes in and has responded well to ranibizumab like was expected in this trial and you offer them uh, a one and done treatment 75% uh, of the time, but it requires surgery. How do you think your patients are gonna uh, take that in Switzerland? Well, I think uh, it's the next exciting way to go with uh, gene therapy, but we are not at the end of the road. If two thirds of the patients re do respond well, that means still there is uh, individual response. And uh, this shows that uh, it may be a dosing thing. It may be that fine tuning is an option. The thing, what my fear is, or what I would expect is that supercoidal will work but it will uh, need a higher uh, concentration of, of, of the virus. And the question is whether this higher concentration of the virus um, is capable of, of being washed out into the system and induce uh, a neutralization of, of, of the effect. This is some of the fear that I have. Definitely, I can say um, the results are promising, but uh, the inter-individual response rates are so large uh, that we are in a, again in a range where predictability is not given and predictability for such a drug would be key uh, for me for such an invasive treatment. I think those are great points. I think we're still learning uh, just as, as you said, I think we're just scratching the surface. We're not at the end of the uh, tunnel yet at all. And I think uh, the exciting thing for me is that it, the long-term safety appears to be pretty good, you know, there's no drug related intraocular inflammation, you know, uh, sub uh, retinal space is uh, immune privilege. So that's a good thing. Uh, but obviously, you know, the trial has seen some pigmentary changes in the retina, especially in the higher cohorts, um, four and five. So we're still learning about that. Uh, and that's why, you know, in the pivotal trials, the location of the bleb has been moved more inferiorly. So even if we get pigmentary changes, we don't get any central involvement, but we are still learning a lot. Um, and, and CNU trains a lot of, uh, lot of uh, residents and fellows, and I'm sure Peter and Justice, both of you do. So I think it's a procedure that's not easy uh, for the trainees to learn. And I think with practice over time, um, we will learn it. And obviously, you know, we do TPA for subretinal hemorrhage, but there the retina is partially elevated. Uh, here, you're going to have to lift and put a bleb uh, in an attached retina. But obviously the surgeons that were in the trial, um, except for me, were really, really good. Uh, but we have seen good, uh, good, uh, good outcomes. So I think it's a procedure that people will need to be more comfortable with. And, and I think the more I do these gene therapies, we are part of the pivotal program too, and I've done many of these. I think you realize that it's not that hard, but of course the unexpected risk, as Sinu said, of surgery and ophthalmitis retinal tears is always going to be there, no matter what you do. Peter, any uh, any last uh, comments from you about RGX314 before we move on? Yeah, I mean, I have the same reservations that uh, Sinu and Eustace uh, have expressed, but, you know, this is really um, a bold new frontier. There's no question that vitrectomy and subretinal uh, injection of gene therapy is not a trivial procedure, but imagine, um, I look forward to the day when we can inject uh, VEGF neutralizing um, cells. Let's imagine if we could replace the RPE with RP cells that produce anti-VEGF therapy. So we um, alleviate the problem of geographic atrophy and fix the problem of neovascularization at the same time. I think 
Um, I think that day is, you know, maybe not imminent, but I think it's uh, on the horizon. I think these are exciting, uh, bold new therapies that um, I look forward to hearing more about. Thanks, Peter. I think that's an excellent uh, point. So now let's move on to the next treatment is ADVMO22, which is an intravitreal gene therapy. And Dr. Justice Garwick will give a quick update uh, here. I'm excited to present the uh, preliminary data of the ADVM022 uh, 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 and uh, the phase one study, which is still ongoing. This is an intravitreal injection, which is as easy as injecting uh, aflibercept or ranibizumab, but it's a gene therapy that has so far been shown to be safe in patients with uh, neovascular AMD. And efficacy has also been observed. The ratio behind this, it uses a novel adeno-associated virus uh, with a capsid, which is uh, capable of uh, uh, producing aflibercept and delivering that directly to the retinal cells following a single intravitreal injection. And uh, this is what makes the thing interesting. The design of the, the AMD study, 30 patients uh, were uh, included in this study into four uh, treatment groups, and all those patients formerly had a high treatment demand for anti-VGF injections to maintain their vision. Patients were divided in a high-dose and a low-dose groups, and because uh, in, in the early phase, res inflammatory responses were seen, oral steroids or uh, corticosteroid eye drops were used to control inflammation. The outcome was assessed at week 26 and went uh, 52, and patients were then followed until week 104. The uh, first results indicate that the drug is well tolerated. Uh, a prophylactic steroid eye drop has been shown effective in uh, curbing the early inflammation, which is present in almost any patient. 13 or 15 patients who were on steroid eye drops have discontinued the eye drops uh, during their treatment. In the low dose group, there was a treatment respondent, 60% of patients who did not need an injection at uh, uh, the end of year one, and 73 of the patients did need either zero or one injection in the first year. In the high dose group, the effect was even increased with 87% of patients not needing any injection during the first year after that uh, ADVM injection. So uh, based on the very good responses uh, reported here, ADVM uh, 022 has been forwarded to a phase three trial, which is expected to start within the next uh, months. Thank you, Justice, uh, for, the, for the great uh, summary of ADVM 022 optic trial. And, and of course, uh, as you mentioned, it's an in-office intramitial gene therapy. Uh, but on the flip side, we also know that uh, injecting AV, you know, you're injecting um, 2E11 or 6E11, so 200 to four, 600 billion vectors intravitreally, obviously can cause, um, you know, issues with immune response and inflammation. And that's why the drops were introduced uh, initially in cohort one and two. Uh, there were 13 days of PO steroids. And what we saw was um, there were breakthrough inflammation. So in three and four, as you presented, or topical drops for six weeks, but we have seen that higher dose cohort one and four have more inflammation and longer inflammation than cohort um, um, two and three, and especially three with topical drops. And that's why, you know, the decision has been made to not take the higher dose forward. Obviously, um, you know, the pivotal trials were planned 
uh, to start uh, later this year, but then in the diabetic macular edema infinity trial, uh, we saw a patient who had um, an adverse event or SUSAR or serious unexpected event. And we'll discuss that in the safety section. Um, Sinu, um, your thoughts, and then Peter after that, before we move on about intravitreal gene therapy and long-term efficacy and safety of the approach. Uh, you know, I, I want to echo Peter's, uh, Dr. Curtis's uh, comments uh, with the last discussion that, that this is an amazing frontier. And uh, I think Lux Turner gave us a lot of um, excitement and enthusiasm, not, not just in ophthalmology and all of medicine, that gene therapies could be a very useful way to treat patients. And uh, going into the Adviram uh, therapies, uh, I was very in, into the Adviram trials. I was very uh, optimistic that we had an intravitreal injection where we could deliver gene therapy and uh, not a subretinal injection, which was, um, you know, led to a lot of optimism from my standpoint. But uh, you said it best uh, that uh, the inflammation concerns, uh, which we will talk about uh, in a later um, discussion, is very serious. Um, uh, not only topical therapy was investigated and then oral uh, steroid was investigated. And despite topical and oral um, steroid, uh, the, the trials were halted due to uh, very severe inflammation leading to hypotony. So um, I, I, I'm, um, I'm concerned. And uh, you know, in terms of the trial design, I think there was under treatment. Uh, there was a very stringent um, uh, protocol for retreatment. Uh, patients had to lose uh, significant vision, had to um, uh, have a lot of fluid on the OCT, uh, accumulate a lot of fluid on the OCT uh, um, before they could be um, rescued. And um, that obviously is not the way we practice, uh, which also concerns me that, um, you know, compared to the retreatment criteria in the CAT study, for instance, um, any fluid, any vision loss uh, was a trigger for retreatment, but certainly not the case in um, the, this trial design. Great points. Uh, Sinu, any uh, wrap up thoughts from you, Peter, about ADVM022? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I find uh, these results very exciting. You know, I, um, you know, the prospect of delivering gene therapy without the risks of vitrectomy and subretinal injection certainly has tremendous appeal, but safety really has to be paramount. And it's not just, um, it's not just, you know, concerns about intraocular inflammation, but, you know, what it takes to control that inflammation. If the, um, if the treatment of the inflammation is worse than the inflammation, then um, really have to pause and, uh, and make sure we're doing our patients a service. But I, I mean, all these things are, are bold and new, and um, they'll take some refining. But um, I think that I think the future is very exciting and very bright. Given the severe inflammation, of, in a majority of cases, uh, retreatment is definitely not an option. So the durability of the first injection uh, will uh, define the future of this drug. I think. I think those are great points. I think it's one and done treatment with supplemental if we need and. To Peter's point, I think this is very exciting times. I think I'm looking forward to next five or 10 years where we have better vectors and, 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 and better learnings about how to manage these patients, maybe neutralizing antibodies play a role and how to really cater the treatment so we have good efficacy and manageable safety. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with the case in a minute. Hello again and welcome back. Now we're gonna have Dr. Sino Hari Prasad present an interesting case from his clinic. So, so the patient I'll be presenting uh, is a very interesting uh, case. 
Um, as I said in a previous episode, we learned a lot uh, during this uh, past 15 months of COVID. And, um, you know, the, we switched a lot of patients to the, what we considered a more durable treatment, bolecizumab. And I want to share this experience, um, why uh, we switched very early to help um, uh, survive through the uh, COVID pandemic in terms of um, not knowing when we'd see these patients again and uh, seeing a great response uh, by switching from uh, a flibercet to Bayavia or bolecizumab. Uh, this woman is a 59-year-old white female, and she has exudative AMD in the right eye. And she received two IV injections every four or five weeks with persistent subretinal fluid and a PED in her right eye. And um, brolicizumab was administered to achieve better drying, but the reality is that we were at a time when we didn't know when we would see her again. And um, at the time, we considered brolicizumab uh, to be more durable uh, than uh, a flibercet. At, ba at baseline, when she received the Bayview injection, her vision was 20 over 50. So at the time we switched to Bayview number one, you can see that um, despite having two aflibercept injections uh, on a, about a monthly basis, or maybe five weeks apart, uh, she had a complex um, clinical scenario, subretinal fluid, as well as a small PED. But it's certainly not the most straightforward um, uh, case. And uh, after five weeks of switching to uh, Bayview, the first injection, um, her vision improved to 20-40, her OCT was bone dry, and subjectively, the patient was very pleased uh, with the improvement in vision. Uh, so you can see from the baseline visit where we switched um, from Bayview to Ilea, uh, from Ilea to Bayview, but look at the improvement in the foveal contour, she picked up one line of vision. But the story is even more interesting that um, uh, she, she had not uh, required an injection for 10 months of follow-up. And so it's not just that we dried the retina, we picked up a line of vision um, above and beyond what we achieved with Ilea. You know, and of course, uh, she only received two Ilea injections, so we didn't give Ilea the full opportunity to work. But the point is that 10 months uh, of follow-up, she did not require an additional injection. So we believe that switching to a new generation anti-VEGF in some cases may lead to a better drying effect and um, increased durability. And we have to really look at adverse event profiles of these new generation therapies and take them into the context as, um, uh, of uh, benefits such as excellent drying effect and excellent durability. That was an excellent case, you know, really highlights the drying power of uh, brolicizumab. Uh, in terms of controlling the disease and, and great durability. So I think uh, you manage the patient very, very well. Justice, I know you have used brolicizumab uh, for over a year now. Um, have you seen uh, drying uh, effect as well as durability similar to what uh, Sinu has described? Of course, each patient is different, but do you feel like it's the best drying agent that is currently approved? It's absolutely my experience that this is not a single case, but this is uh, the standard. The uh, drying power of, of B of U exceed that of, of the uh, other two uh, marketed drugs. That's no question. What is surprising here is the 10-month effect. This is something that I haven't seen in, in that extension. But generally speaking, the treatment duration and the treatment strengths are clearly longer. Um, what this case indicates is uh, very important. It does not seem to need a loading phase in the majority of cases that are switched. Even the high demanders do not need a uh, loading phase. And this is uh, well my experience. I think those are excellent points. I think my experience is the same as you. I don't think we need to load patients that we are switching because the drug is so powerful. I usually bring them back at the same interval that they were before and they were dry 
then I don't re-inject. I actually monitor them every two to four weeks, more kind of like a treat and extend approach until we figure out what the sweet spot is. And just like you said, Justice, I've seen patients go anywhere from two to six to eight weeks longer than what they were, their previous treatment was and their disease was well controlled. Obviously, we're going to talk about safety in our last episode. Uh, so we have to balance efficacy and safety of any new agent. Peter, does this case uh, uh, from Sino excite you about uh, brolicizumab once it's approved in Canada? Any thoughts on the case? Yeah, I mean, it was a, a great case and very impressive durability. I mean, what was also impressive, I mean, we had in previous episodes, we talked about the presence of pigment epithelial detachments and how we usually don't chase um, resolution of the pigment epithelial detachments with our treatment, but um, it's always reassuring and nice to see those pigment epithelial detachments go away. I always worry about that they'll get replaced with geographic atrophy, but um, even though I tolerate pigment epithelial detachments, I'm always happy when I see them, if not resolve entirely, like in Sinu's case, I'm, I'm happy when I see them uh, get smaller and shrink. I really think um, it really speaks to me that this drug is beneficial and working. Those are excellent points, Peter, obviously, because we all want to see normal anatomy. So we want to flatten those PEDs if we can, but obviously we're not chasing them if the, uh, there's no intraretinal or subretinal fluid. So with that, uh, we'll wrap up this episode. Uh, thank you again for listening. Thank you to our esteemed uh, international faculty uh, for robust uh, discussions. Next time, we'll review real-world and clinical trial safety data in uh, VET-AMD. Uh, please also uh, check out images from the cases uh, that have been presented here on itube.net. Thanks again for your attention. Mm -hmm.